<laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another wonderful edition of The Word on the Hill. This is The Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. And I'm Father Peter Mussett. And I am so happy the Lank is returning in my life. I was able to jog a whole block today. And then we have undone it with everything we ate for lunch. <laughs> know. We, you should see what is spread out before us. <laughs> it's like... Thanks to your aunt and uncle. You have Flaming Hot Cheetos. Yeah. We've got um, all sorts of gummies of all varieties. All I mean, varieties. You just don't even know. I mean, sour, we're, we're like, this is Harboro. Spaghetti worms, twin snakes, sweet and sour pork. Dude, it's, bears. Am- it's amazing. We've got, we've got ginger ale. Yeah, we do. I haven't opened mine yet. Have you? Uh, no, not yet. All right. And um, I have to say that um, also <clears throat> that. Um, Talk to me. Oh, shoot, I can't remember what I was going to say. Wait, for real? Yeah. Well, we got to plow through. <laughs> we're not starting this again. <laughs> we, I'm turning this car around and we're going back. Uh, well, to the, Catholic to, stuff you should know. To, to Catholic stuff you should know. Today we are in the 27th Sunday in Ordinary Time. That is right. We are, we are counting down the days. Well, we have quite a while until Advent begins. Dude, I mean, we're talking at least six weeks. Yeah, so we I think last week we said something like readings are heating up as we get closer to the end of ordinary time, well, which I'll, is like two months away. I'll never forget when I first got here as a priest in Boulder, and you're like trying to be pastoral, you're trying to get to know the people, yeah. and then you read these readings at Sunday Mass that are so intense and filled with judgments and oracles of things that Ooh. you're like, you're like, Lord, <laughs> take the wheel. Wow. Lord, take the Jesus, wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. That's that was, we were praying right before the podcast and this guy was like, mm, take the wheel. <laughs> we, we need it today. We, we need of it. all days. Scott, Scott came in and he was super moody. I'm not moody. I just I I have a class tonight and I'm introducing some things I've never taught before and I just want to do it well. So I'm a little a little nervous about it. And that's I, all. I've and, got and I'm teaching a Bible study on a book I've never taught on tomorrow. I've kind of bit off more than I can chew. I'm doing fine though. <laughs> and then of course we have Habakkuk show up today. I know, you can't, know, it's it's a tough can't it, wing it when it comes to Habakkuk. <laughs> it's a tough Habakkuk to break. Uh, oh uh, well well done. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Well, our first reading is from Habakkuk. Wow, if you could right figure in. that, it's a uh, chapter one, verses two to three. Then jumping to two, two to four. I had a friend from the south who used to be a a, a, a pastor slash preacher, and he would call it Habakkuk. Habakkuk. <laughs> yeah, which I don't think is how you pronounce it, but he'd always talk about Habakkuk. And then I had another colleague who I taught with once that called it Habakkuk. <laughs> he would really <laughs> emphasize the kook part. <laughs> Habakkuk. Yeah, Psalm. 95, verses 1 through 2, 6 through 7, and 8 through 9. <laughs> I had so many shout-outs this week that I forgot all about. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll do some shout-outs after At the, the end. <laughs> we'll the save readings? it to the end of the podcast. Okay. Then they have to listen all the way through to uh, see, am I going to get a shout-out? Am I going to get a shout-out? Because we've got a lot of shout-outs, dude. We need to have a section of the podcast where we have the mailbag. Because regularly, I get these emails that... We get a lot of emails, but sometimes there's just some real gems that I always read them like, you know, on a Friday and think about addressing them the next Wednesday in the podcast. And of mm-hmm. course I forget. Dude, so I need to be better about We that. need more sugar to our brain is really the, the problem. Not at the moment. <laughs> All right. Second reading is Second Timothy, chapter 1, 6 through 8, um, followed by 13 through 14. Yeah. Yeah. And our, our gospel is coming from Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, which is not cool. Quite a direct continuation of where we left off last week. We jump, and it's one of those things. We jumped over, I think, 
the four most important verses that we needed to connect the dots. Maybe that's maybe that's an overstatement, but it's one of those things, man. I wish we had the ones that preceded. All right, Habakkuk. <laughs> Dude, that guy's kooky. Okay, well done. All right, what do we say about Habakkuk? Habakkuk. <laughs> I, now I'm stuck saying it. <laughs> Dude, and I'm just going to be kooky for this whole section. All right, here's the thing about Habakkuk. Uh, how do we how do we say this? The way that the way that this sort of grand scheme of the prophets work. If you kind of take them as one huge picture from the major prophets. So, you know, we, we talk sometimes about the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets. Yep. Um, the major prophets, what are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Ezekiel Daniel. Uh, Daniel sometimes gets qualified that way and sometimes not. But the only reason we call some major and some minor is merely the size of the book and the things that we know about them. It doesn't mean that Isaiah is more important than Habakkuk or that Habakkuk's message is less important. It just means that we know less about him and we have – it's a smaller book. Nice way to be subtle. Um, the bag is loud. I know. That was for you, Neil. Um it's a smaller book, so we don't know a whole lot about Habakkuk. He's probably a contemporary of Jeremiah. But if you're, if you're looking at this from the grand scheme, so we have this whole slew. Some of you have seen the, the Great Adventure Bible timeline, right? You Love it. Those flowing around. Yeah. But they have sort of where all of the books of the Bible show up on this timeline and when they're taking place. And you can see this huge amount of prophets that show up just before the northern kingdom is about to be destroyed. So remember the... Nation of Israel split in two, the northern kingdoms up, up, up in the north, worshiping their own gods, founding their own temples, their own priests. You know, that this is what Amos has been speaking against for the previous few weeks, right? Right. And so there's this constant attention, huge glut of attention on the north and how they really need to turn back or things are going to get real ugly with Assyria. And then the inevitable happens. Assyria attacks. They begin to go off in exile. And you see the focus of the prophets all then shift to the south. South, Because that's what remains. Exactly. But not only because it's what remains, but it's because the south are being very, um, they're they're feeling a little too good about themselves. And they're not only feeling good about themselves, but they're kind of scoffing and mocking their brothers and sisters to the north who have turned away from God, have been hauled off into exile. This is, was this last week that Amos kind of turned his attention? Oh, by the way, hey, you Southern your, Kingdom. Your fancy couches, guess yeah, what? You guys think that, yeah, you think that you're going to be all sweet, but the fact is, is unless you repent, you're going to have the same fate. Exactly. Because they're not much better, frankly. So Habakkuk is speaking to the South, and he's speaking again. I mentioned he's probably a contemporary of Jeremiah. He's very close to the time that everything's going to go down for the South. And he probably lives to see it. We're not 100% sure on that, right? Um, But, okay, where and when? So based on the prophet's prediction of Babylon coming in and destroying the South, um, some scholars think that Habakkuk lived in Judah toward the end of a guy named King Josiah. And that is actually an historical marking point that's important. Do you know anything about King Josiah? No. It's an important point in salvation history. Josiah, so again, the North, they were lousy. They had terrible kings. The South had awful, terrible kings, except for this one guy named Josiah. And Josiah was this really profoundly righteous king who came not too long before the destruction, who really tried with all of his effort to turn Israel back to God. So he tried to be a righteous king. And what's the fundamental problem in Israel, both in the North and the South? The fundamental problem is when they don't pass on the faith to their children. And that's when you see things get really bad because the faith is not passed on, which, of course, you can translate that to our own history, our own church. When we don't pass on the faith and teach our children, we, we face big troubles, right? You can pass that on to our election. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get there in a minute. 
But um, I don't. We won't get there. No. No, we will in the sense of the well, hopelessness. If, but if you have a bunch of like kind of if you're struggling with your kids and they're not taking it on and you still uh, are in childbearing years, you can have a child and name them Josiah, and you have a better likelihood that they will be faithful. Josiah, by the way, is the subject of the. <laughs> That's absurd. I can't believe. I, said so that. I just let that go. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Josiah is the subject of um, the Old Testament Armageddon. Armageddon. Um, which Har-Megedion. shows well, Hotter Megiddo actually. So the so Josiah was this young, brilliant, righteous, holy reformer king who was kind of cut down and killed in the prime of his life innocently on the plains of Megiddo, mm. Hotter Megiddo. So when you see references in Revelation about a new Armageddon, the people who were formed Jewishly are thinking, oh, a young 30-something righteous holy king who is cut down in the prime of his life through sin. Oh. Which is interesting. So that that's uh, lots more we could say about that. So Josiah holds a big place in the psyche of Israel, which is why the Revelation can refer to Armageddon and assume that the Jewish listeners will think of King Josiah. Oh, cool. But here's the thing we need to know about King Josiah. King Josiah was having this huge reform. He decided to renovate the temple because it was falling into disrepair after the Assyrians kind of beat up on Israel. Okay. Syrians are gone. He says, let's renovate the, temp- the temple. Construction crews are in there. They're like, <laughs> you know, your kitchen. They <laughs> had all the crews <laughs> doing the renovations. <laughs> and someone discovers a scroll hidden deep in the bowels of the temple. And they're like, well, this looks important. Maybe we should take it to the king. So they take the scroll to the king. And lo and behold, it's Deuteronomy. It is the law of Israel. And Josiah begins to read it. And he's like, uh-oh. We Uh-oh. probably should have been doing this stuff oh, and really? reading this book because this is really important. Yeah. But it kind of shows you how far Israel has fallen. Even the scriptures, the Torah, has been buried and lost and forgotten Yeesh. to the point where they find this whole listing of these these commands. And if you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do it, you'll be cursed. And he's like, oh, that's why everything's so hard. Because we've ignored all this stuff. And so his big reform is saying, hey, everybody, we need to return to these things and these commands and this Torah and all this stuff. So that's who Josiah is, right? So that's what he does. Habakkuk probably sees part of his life. But then he's taken over by a king named uh, Jehoiakim right afterwards who stinks and who goes back on everything Josiah did. And it's this heartbreaking, like, no, you've undone everything. And that's where... Habakkuk comes in is like, okay. Habakkuk is unique among the prophets, though. So that's our setting. That's that's the backdrop, right? Does that make sense? Yep. But here's what's unique about Habakkuk. He's not a prophet in the sense of, you think of most of the prophets as these voices who go to the powerful and say, hey, repent, change your ways, or go to the people and have these messages. Habakkuk doesn't do that. The book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And that's the whole book. And it basically runs along the the eternal the, the perennial theme of why do bad things keep happening to us? Mm. And not even just why do bad things because because he he knows the answer to that question. The question is really how long, O oh Lord, will you let evil go on? Oh, how long will you let injustice thrive? How long until you step in and set things right? Are we are we doomed to devil to deal with evil and horrible and powerful people forever. Are you ever going to fix the world? Right. Right. Which should sound so 
it should resonate so much with us in our world and the culture of death and politics, like you said, and everything else. Like, oh my gosh, can it get any worse before God steps in and says, okay, I'll fix it. I'll punish the guilty. I'll free the righteous. You know, and we, right. we just wonder, are you ever going to do anything about this? Do you see us here? Right. That's the book of Habakkuk. That's the question of Habakkuk. And so where we step in, we step in right at the very beginning. It says, how long, O Lord? I cry for help, but you don't listen. I cry out violence, but you don't intervene. Why do you let me see ruin? Why must I look at misery? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and clamorous discord. And he, he goes on, and then we actually have a jump um, to chapter two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Which he says, write the vision, make it plain upon tablets so that he may run who reads it. The vision is going to be hard. Do you know what the vision is? No. This is where Habakkuk gets very disturbing. So he says, here's this question. The Lord says, okay, I have an answer. Here is the vision, and the vision will not disappoint. Did you know uh, I worked for, um, when I was a focus missionary, I was in the diocese of Bishop Robert Morlino, who's in Wisconsin now. And on his crest, his Episcopal crest, he chose this passage from Habakkuk, the vision will not disappoint. Wow. Which is essentially saying God will be faithful to his covenant promises. God is chesed. He is trustworthy. But sometimes the path to get there is going to be ugly. Okay, so here's what God... So the, these first four verses that we get are um, Habakkuk's, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Habakkuk's question to God. And then verse five is God's answer. And we skip over this, but it says this. God says in answer to the how long, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. So what I'm about to tell you, it's going to astound you. Maybe not in the good way. For I am doing a work in your days that you will not believe me if I told you. Isn't that a great line? Mm. You wouldn't believe me if I told you so. <laughs> For lo, I am rousing the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? Uh, they are the group that's near them. <laughs> the, ba- the Babylonians. Babylonians. So Babylon, the, another term is the Chaldeans. So sometimes you see those interchangeably in the Bible. That bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize habitations not their own, dread and terrible are they. Their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their pridefulness, right? Their horses are swifter than leopards. There it talks about their, their weaponry and their horsemen. They're swift and their violence and all these things. God's answer to Habakkuk's question of how long are you going to let these things go on is, oh, I'm going to put a stop to it. But guess how I'm going to put a stop to it? By working through the Babylonians. I'm giving my grace and my authority to them. And Habakkuk is like, I'm I'm sorry, you what? You what now? (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to, I don't think we can fully understand how, what kind of a message that would be. It'd be like, I mean, I hate I, I hate to say this, but it'd it would be like literally saying Mexico is about to take you over. No, it'd be like saying ISIS. It literally be God saying, "I'm going to give my authority to ISIS to come and deal with you." Yeesh. That's the equivalent. No, it's not Mexico. I mean, it's think of your worst, most horrifying, the people that you fear and despise more than anyone. God says, "I'm going to work through that group." Your most, the last people that you could ever dream. That's why he says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. But the question is, how much are you willing to trust in God's sovereignty? Is God God of the Chaldeans as much as he is of Israel? Is God God of your enemies as well? Do you believe that God can actually change hearts there? Or to what degree are we willing to shortchange God? And so I believe in God, but he can't do that. 
It's why you know I'm I'm thinking about politics, and I'm, I'm you know, Dude, and I don't I, like I either even, one of them. I can't even believe like how intense of a message that is. Like like he says, you're not going to believe this. Like <laughs> he it's, says it's, it. Like the way you say it there, like I'm stunned. I I, I don't. You I should like, be. And he's like he's like write he's like he's like write this down. Yeah. And make it clear so everybody knows this is not a. He says you're going to put this on tablets. Yeah. You're going to put this on a sandwich board. Yeah, people don't like Habakkuk. <laughs> yeah, no or kidding. his contemporary Jeremiah, who they try to kill. Yeah, and you can see why because the messages. And again, there's so there's two things going on. Number one, it's this question: How far are we willing to trust in God's grace? Do we really believe that God could? work through a man like Donald Trump. And I bet half of the listeners are like, yeah, I believe that. Do we really believe that God could work through and show grace and mercy to the likes of Hillary Clinton? And the same half are like, no, we can never do that. And then the other half are like, no, Donald Trump. No, God can never do that. We're never going to articulate this, but we have this sense in us. Like, no, no, never. That person is pure. This person who I hate is pure evil. God's grace is not big enough for that. Right. Which is just, and I do the same thing. It's just this reminder of like, oh man, how much do I trust in God's grace? I, I do what I can and mm-hmm. I do as much as I can. And I, you know, that saying work as though everything depends on you, pray as though everything depends on God. But are you willing to take whatever happens and, and trust in the idea that God is still sovereign in the midst of it? That's what Habakkuk is being asked to do. Chaldeans are coming. Now, the other thing with that, that should be, really burning at the hearts of Israel for this fact. What, I mean, what was Israel's vocation to begin with? The beginning of salvation history. There to be a light to the nations. Right. A the elder blessing, brother, yeah. right? The blessing. The fact that there is a Babylon who is bloodthirsty and violent and cruel and terrible suggests that to some degree Israel did not do her job. Hmm. What if Israel had actually evangelized the Chaldeans to begin with? What if that family relationship and, and back in Genesis were actually showed where the Babylonians come from and it's all from the family of Abraham. It's all from the same family line. What if they'd actually done their job of being an elder brother with mercy and compassion, showing one another to God? Could it be that you wouldn't have the bloodthirsty Babylonians that they do? I mean, I don't know. That's a theoretical question, but right. it should be burning at the hearts of Israel. Right. Should burn at the hearts of us. You know, why are there Catholic politicians who are, seem so anti-Catholic? That should burn at our hearts rather than saying, what's wrong with you, horrible person? Where did we fail? Where, like Josiah, did we fail to pass down the traditions and the faith? Right. And how do we accuse ourselves and then seek God's mercy in the light of it? The, the whole point of Habakkuk, I think, is just seeing, dealing with the question, how far are you willing to extend God's grace? How far are you willing to trust in his sovereignty? Which really brings us back to all of the parables that we've been looking at for the last three weeks in the Gospel of Luke, which are about this over overwhelming mercy and compassion on the part of the master slash father's of all the parables that Jesus has been giving for the last three weeks. Right. Are you willing to apply that to your life? Are you willing to actually live in that? I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. It, it's an incredibly well, I think troubling the, passage. The timing is actually the, the hard part. That I mean, well, it's, it's the beautiful part. It says, if it seems slow, wait for it. Right. Which it, is... It's going to come. Yeah. And he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail. 
Because it's hard. Because the it's right, going to take a lot of trust. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Right. Now, this is the thing is that, is that what what is ultimate, like I am becoming more and more convinced that faith and risk are actually like, they're in the same um, phylum. They're in the same kingdom of food. You know what I mean? They're like in the same genre. Like the, wow. they, they, they actually like, le, like are so intricately tied to each other because to risk, like you actually have to risk something to be a faithful person. Absolutely. You don't, you don't Big just, time. you don't just get as like be faithful and say like, Oh, that's nice. This is just going to be a really comfortable now. Yeah. It's actually no, because otherwise your soul will fail, and that, like, that does happen. So, absolutely, to all of us, to some degree or another, right? Right, it's hard. It's hard. Which leads Which, into the psalm. Such a perfect lead into Psalm ninety-five. Mirabah and Massa. Yeah. Well, but even the the response itself from verse eight: If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Right. What just happened to Habakkuk? He heard the voice of the Lord, telling him the last thing that he wanted to hear. What would be the temptation of Habakkuk having heard that terrible message from the Lord Ooh. to harden his heart? Right. I mean, this is not, if today you hear his voice harden your heart, it's not God saying, oh, I love you. You're so special and you're beautiful. Few of us are going to harden our hearts at that. Right. We're going to harden our hearts if we're being told to show mercy to our worst enemy and our worst fear. Mm. That's what it's saying not to harden our hearts towards. Right. In in a very particular way, and you brought up Meribah and Massa, which isn't that where um, Moses struck the rock twice out of, like he yeah. was like he was like yeah. massively frustrated, but then at the same <laughs> yeah. time, here's one who is supposed to have a, a tr- he was actually supposed to whisper to the rock, but rather he hit the rock right. instead. Why? Um, because he would lacked faith. Uh, but why? I mean, yeah, that's that's a good kind of spiritual, but on a very practical <laughs> level, because he he was a shepherd and that's what he was used to doing. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I think it was just because he was impatient. I mean, what does the first reading tell him? If it's slow to come, don't lose faith. Abraham's been wandering around the wilderness looking for food, looking for drink. It's not working, the stupid rock, you know. It's impatience. God, are you going to do this or not? I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to actually— I'm going to do it. I'm going to push the river rather yeah. than actually let the river flow. It is impatience. Right. Because it's really hard to wait on the Lord, mm. especially if you know you're headed into danger. Which is what Habakkuk knows that the people are headed in toward. Which is what Moses knows that the people are headed toward. Oh, yeah. How do you yeah. trust and be patient in the Lord in that? How do you trust and be patient in the Lord in the election season? One way or the other, we're in trouble. And I'm going to sit and be patient and wait on the Lord. I'm going to do what I have to do, and I'm going to do my job as a good citizen. But I just have to sit and be patient and wait for the Lord. Yeah. Oh. Don't let your hearts be hardened. Yeah, and, and 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 actually have faith. Don't let your soul despair. Despair, right. despair which is, is the about same thing surety. as hardening of heart, really, yeah. in, in a certain sense, right? Well, yeah. This is the thing: is that despair is about surety. I want actually something predictable to happen, rather than to actually because, like, if I despair, I know exactly what's going to take place. Yeah, that's versus true. that's true. Versus saying like, no, I'm going to actually open myself to the real adventure, and I'm going to stick out, and I'm going to go in faith and see if the Lord will show up. And that is really hard. It's Especially when you're facing your worst fear, your greatest enemy, and all the stuff that's going to destroy you. Absolutely. That's absolutely it. Which applies to some degree to 2 Timothy into our second reading here, right? Because now 2 Timothy, we've been in 1 Timothy for a while, mm. but now we're in 2 Timothy. Now Timothy, here's, what I, here's how I think you can apply this. Um, 1 Timothy is a letter, and we're not in 1 Timothy. We have been, though. And 1 Timothy, we said, was this letter that was written by Paul 
basically to show the community that he's giving his apostolic authority to Timothy to be bishop of that city, right? Right. And he wants everyone to hear. So the things that he says in 1 Timothy are very practical. This is how you govern. This is the kind of character you look for in leaders, you know, da 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 Second Timothy is different. Second Timothy is is more of a personal letter from Paul to his best friend, his closest, you know, um, mentor, uh, mentee, disciple, <laughs> disciple. Thank you, um, Timothy, on his deathbed. Paul's about to die. He knows he's about to die. He says it, it's imminent. So, I mean, in the Bible, the last words of very important people merit great attention. Absolutely. That's what, I mean, Moses on his deathbed, right? David, this is Paul's last words to his best friend. It's a profoundly beautiful letter. So Paul, what's he facing? He's facing the unknown. I know I'm about to die soon. I have a lot of faith and I have a lot of trust about what's waiting for me on the other side. Mm. But man, this is it. Here we go. Yeah. I've finished the fight. I've, I've, I've run, the run the race. I've been faithful. And now I trust that the crown is waiting for me. This is the things that he says in this letter, right? Beloved, Timothy is his beloved. I remind you to stir into flame the gift that God gave you through the imposition of my hands. For God didn't give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather of power, of love, and of self-control. And some translations say discipline. So don't be ashamed of your testimony to the Lord, nor of me, who is a prisoner for, your, for his sake. But bear your share of the hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. I mean, I, I again, I hear this being said to Habakkuk who's been given the worst news that someone could possibly be given about their nation, about their country, and being told, but God didn't give you a spirit of cowardice. He gave you a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Right. Act in that. Move forward in that faith. Right. Bear your hardship for the sake of me because I will carry you through, right? Um, Paul says, take as your norm the sound words that you heard from me, the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard this rich trust with the help of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It's going to get hard. And we know that the church from this point on is going to undergo one of the bloodiest persecutions in human history. Paul knows exactly what he's saying. He's sitting in prison about to die. He's not speaking abstractly. He's like, this is going to get real, Timothy. This is going to get real hard, but have faith. And actually... To even put more of a fine point on it, the Sam, the only bee in your bonnet. We had a couple of emails about they might be giants. Did we? Week. Yeah. Um, well, okay, let me see if I can work this out. Habakkuk's being told that God is going to work through the Babylonians for his good. The Babylonians are going to come and obliterate and enslave and persecute the Israelites. Timothy is facing the persecution of the Roman Empire. It is the persecution of the Roman Empire that gives the fuel of the church to spread and evangelize the world. Tertullian, right? The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Right. It is that same person. So Habakkuk's facing the Babylonians. Timothy is facing the Roman Empire. Both of them are set to attack the people of God. Both of them will be the means through which God's plans are actually brought to fruition. The Roman Empire's persecution was the impetus that allowed the church to spread throughout the world mm. until the Roman Empire itself was converted. Mm. Same thing with the Babylonians. They were taken into slavery in Babylon. Babylonians were eventually conquered by the Medo-Persians, and it was the Persians. Remember Cyrus the Persian? who actually acted as God's instrument and allowed the people to go back, gave money to rebuild the temple, did all of these profoundly beautiful things to the point where up until, I think, the early 40s, mid-40s, 
Do you know where the second biggest Jewish population was in the world other than in Israel? In Babylon. In Baghdad. Baghdad, sorry. Which is, yeah. which is the capital, which was the former capital Babylon, of Babylon. Chalcedon of Babylon. Yeah. Because God worked his good through that. Mm. It took some chastisement. It took right. some punishment. It hurt. Right. But God's greater good came out the other side. And that's the point, I think, of what Timothy is facing. That's, I think, the connection here. Which takes us to the Gospels, which to me is a little bit more confusing, but I think there's something here. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. Oh, my. Ooh. We're cruising. Dude, we are, we're, we're making it rain right around here, man. Now, picture this. We've just come from the parable. Uh, we, we, I don't, I'm still not convinced it's a parable, but our reading last week, right, when Jesus gives, I guess the only reason people debate whether it's a parable is because it's the only parable in which somebody has a name. Lazarus. Lazarus and the rich man, right? Right. Parables are usually just they're oh, abstract. They're, 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 they're abstracted from yeah. anything. They, you have titles, whereas Lazarus is a specific... Which is weird. And yeah. I don't know why that is, but be that as it may. Absolutely. Lazarus and the rich man, right? We have this, no, you know, even if you rise from the dead. And then we jump four verses, which I don't know why we do. And we jump into verse five. Again, take out chapter divisions for a second. Remember, chapter divisions were were not inspired by God. Some poor monk had to put him in and try to figure out where the best place was later. And they're, they're good and they're and fine. He was not that educated. No, and he did his best. But again, take this all as one whole. I've always thought, dude, we should, I've always thought we should do that. I'm sure other scripture scholars have thought the same, but Just whatever. put, just make a big, just change, oh, put change, in our own chapter divisions? Yeah, yeah, change the chapter divisions. Mm. Mm. I know, that's bold. I'm open to it. Okay. Uh, when I have some spare time. Okay, yeah. Okay, so he just told this parable, Lazarus, the rich man, no, I'm not going to send Lazarus back from the dead. Nobody's going to believe him. Even if somebody raises from the dead, they have Moses and the prophets. Remember the whole story. Yep. Then, again, take out the chapter division. And then he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come. Right. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea than that one than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Everybody's got the rich man on their mind. Everybody's got on their mind this rich man from the story who you proposed might actually be the dishonest steward from the previous parable who looked out for himself, who was only concerned with his well-being when he faced trials and hardships. He made sure that he would come out on top. He did not trust in God. He trusted in himself, in his own cunning, in his money. And we saw where it got him in the afterlife, right? Into that context, Jesus says this. So everybody's thinking, the disciples are all thinking about this guy. It would be better. Yeah, it would have been better if the millstone was (laughs) at his neck, frankly. And he says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins like that guy did, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again, uh, against you seven times in the day and he turns seven times and says repent you must forgive him seven you know and in other gospels it says the seven times seven how many times should i forgive right seven remember for the hebrew people numbers are way less about the quantity of something and more about the quality of something so seven what does seven represent seven is a covenantal number it is the number that represents the covenant but but what does it mean it has a generic meaning too to it was because of this that it's purifying? applied to the covenant. No, it means a totality. Oh, totality. Complete. So why seven days of creation? Because on the seventh day, it's done. He has completed got it. it. Got and it. And that's yeah. why it's a fitting covenant number, because when you covenant yourself to someone, you say, I give myself to you As a completely. total self-gift. Total gift. That's why seven is that. So what Jesus is saying is, don't count on your little finger seven times of forgiving. He says, forgive them to the end. 
totally, completely. If they sin seven times, forgive them completely seven times in, in its totality, right? Right. That's what he's getting at. Right. Which, again, that, that we got. And then we jump into what we have. And in response to that, the apostles said, what? Increase, Increase our, our faith. Absolutely. In other words, oh. that's really hard, Jesus. Again, we're kind of dumped into the middle of this this week, right. which is a little frustrating. Right. Because a little context would have helped. But the apostles to that say, increase our faith. Because he's just said, forgive the unforgivable. And they're thinking of all the people in their lives probably. They're like, oh, I would have a really hard time forgiving that person. They did these bad things so many times. And then the Romans were like this. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And they're like, if we're going to do that, we're going to need some more faith. Right. Increase our faith. You begin to see how this ties to the other readings, right? And the Lord replied, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed for Pete's sake, you can say this mulberry tree, or some translations say uh, sycamore tree. Sycamore. Be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it will obey you. What's the faith the size of a mustard seed? A mustard seed is has one of the greatest capacities in seeddom, in ornithology or whatever, to bear something profoundly huge. Right? Really? It's all packed in there. I don't know. But the idea of a seed, no. <laughs> it means something is dormant in there, right? Absolutely. I yeah. guess I can't speak to a mustard seed that much right now. Yeah, it's it, it's just well, it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny seed. Right. Yeah. And, it's yeah. and and yet at the same time, it can be huge. It can be huge. The capacity. Yes. And then he goes into this kind of weird thing that I struggled to find how to apply. And he says, "Who among you would say to your servant?" And this is again kind of a little parable. Let I guess a little mini parable. Who among you would say to your servant who has just come in from plowing or tending the field, come here immediately, take your place at the table? So, you know, your servant comes in. He's been working really hard. What master would be like, oh, come sit down, put your feet up, rest for a little while? Rather, the master would say, no, get me my food, (laughs) get me my drink, do your job. So what he's saying is this isn't some master who's cruel. He's saying, look, no master commends his servant just for doing what he's supposed to do. The servant does what he's told. He does what's expected. So it should be with you. When you have done all that you've commanded and you say, we are unprofitable servants. What have we, we have done what we are obliged to do. What are they obliged to do? Forgive. Forgive. They're saying, it's really hard, Jesus. We need more faith. And on a certain level, he's, he's, um, Putting the smack down on him. He's like, it's, do it's, this your isn't, job. This isn't some sort of intellectual engagement. He's like, this is actually just something you do. And it, it's yeah. not coincidental that earlier, well, certainly in Matthew's gospel and Mark, to, uh, Luke to some degree, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter seven, where he's like, when you pray and you fast and you do all these things, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be looking for this huge reward. I think that's the implication here. They're like, well, if we do that, we're going to be, you know. We're going to deserve some recognition. I mean, that's the implication. He's like, no, you don't. This is what you're called to do. There, and I also don't think this is the chapter division thing. You can't take this apart from the parables because what they're doing, what this is responding to, Jesus, is a temptation to act like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Right. Which is so distant from our minds because it was like four weeks ago. But in the text, it's the same conversation. And they're like, you've just told all these parables about God's overwhelming mercy and how he's going to pour out his grace and his compassion and mercy on the seemingly unforgivable. The dishonest steward who's given this overwhelming mercy, the whole town of the dishonest steward, the prodigal son, all these people that have done these terrible things. You've been speaking about this God who's going to pour out inestimable mercy and compassion on them. 
what about us? Right. And the second reading, even on the Romans, the Romans are going to be given grace. The Babylonians, the Persians, they're going to be God's chosen servants to be given grace Oof. and be faithful. And Israel's like, wait a second, the Babylonians, what about us? Right. And he's like, you be you. You do your job. You, and what you he wants you. to say is what he said to the elder brother. What everything I have is yours, and it always has been. And you're mad that I want to welcome in? You know, I mean, a former ISIS member shows up at our church and is like, I repent of everything that I've done. I'm so sorry. Please accept me as a follower of Jesus. How on earth do you think we would receive that person? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Right. I really don't. But I bet a lot of people would be like, wait, you're forgiving him? I mean, this is St. Paul. Imagine if that seems like a weird analogy. St. Paul had literally been beheading Christians, stoning them, throwing them off cliffs, killing them. Right. And then he goes to Damascus and he shows up in the church. And he's like, hey, can I become one of you guys? I mean, the fact that they accepted him is one of the most profound miracles in the Bible. Right. This guy who literally he, were beheading them and killing them and horrified of them. Yes, we will bring you as our brother. I mean, the vocation, that's My why gosh. Ananias is, is named. Yeah. And why, yeah, 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 why, he, why he has a name is because that man, he's like, he's like, you want me to do, huh? <laughs> you want what now? I'm like, who? Yeah. He's like, go out and meet this guy. You're like, Saul of Tarsus. And you're like, uh, whoa, brother. Right. Yeah. But can you imagine being a member of the community like a year later and be like, why is Saul getting all this attention? Like, that's great. You know, I mean, he killed people. Like, he was a jerk. I mean, that's great. He's doing all this nice stuff. What about us? We were here from the beginning. We were here the whole time. No, you do your job. Oh, yeah, man. And that's, that is such a, you brought down to human terms. Isn't that funny? And what is your job? To be merciful, to yeah. forgive the Pauls of the world. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day, and uh, he was talking about um, how he had had a conversation with Ronald Reagan. And uh, this guy was kind of a big deal. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of, his, it was all very weird. He was like, and, and he, Ronald Reagan went to him and he said, he said, I need you to do this. And he said, I can't do that. And he said, he says, it's amazing. You can accomplish anything you want if you don't care who gets the credit. Oh my. And that was what Reagan said to him. And then, and then he, and then he didn't let up and he, and this, wow. and this guy and that like that, that is like his one piece of advice to me. Wow. It, from from this conversation, and I wow. was thinking, gosh, yeah, absolutely. If if the if the servant at the end isn't saying like, hey, who's going to be recognized for this? Yeah, he says it's amazing what you can accomplish. Wow, that's yeah. a pretty powerful line. It's a very very powerful line. Um, that is a good note to end on. Yeah, and we have a couple of shout outs. Yes, we do. We want to give a shout out first of all to to Michael Flight and his wife out in Chicago. Take and fly like very, a bird. I've been very generous to the podcast and oh. are very, uh, very good friends. And he wanted to give a shout out to Sister Stephanie Beliga, who just took her final uh, vows in the front. Uh, she's a Franciscan now. Um, the mission of Our Lady to the Angels, Our Lady of the Angels. Stephanie, Sister Stephanie, Michael, if you didn't know this, was actually one of our early counselors at Camp Wojtyla. Oh. And she is a stud. She is super cool. I think she was in like the Chicago Tribune a couple of years ago for running the Chicago Marathon. Maybe in full habit. I'm not totally sure. Dude, super cool though. That's awesome. So, Sister Stephanie, congratulations on your final vows. Uh, flight family, shout out to you guys as well. Anybody yeah. else? The, uh, all, everybody. Everybody else. We love you all. Awesome. You guys are the best. We will be back next week. Keep it real. Don't fake the funk. Never. And uh, we will see you when we do. See you then. Peace.
The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.